scripture this morning is Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 through 9. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But among you there must be not even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore do not be partners with them. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light, for the fruit of light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. This is God's word. You may be seated. If you're visiting with us this morning, you'll find inside of the announcements sheet that, uh, that bulletin, you'll find an outline that you can use uh, to make some notes and to fill in the blank as we go through uh, the lesson this morning. Ephesians chapter 5 uh, Bob read for us verses 1 through 9 of the 5th chapter. We're going to really kind of go to about the 17th uh, verse of that chapter. And so if you've got a Bible open, you might want to open as well to Ephesians chapter 5 or get that smart device out and uh, plug in, type in Ephesians chapter 5. And we're going to be looking at that passage, um, not in tremendous detail this morning because there's just too much, but we're going to look at the very salient points this morning. And as we normally do before we get into God's Word and press our mind into it, we want to ask God to be with us and to bless us and to direct us and for us to be honest in hearing His Word this morning. So let's pray together and then we'll jump into it. Father, I want to thank You for this letter that Paul wrote to this church 2,000 years ago in Ephesus in that region. And the knowledge that he has imparted to us about how we reflect your presence, your, your grace, your salvation, your will, our relationship with you as Father, how all of that is reflected in every area of our life. Not just in, in the way that we might speak or what we do with our money, but even in areas of human sexuality. And so we pray, Father, diligently and in the name of Jesus this morning, asking you to give us eyes to see and ears to hear, not just to know with our head, but to, but to be transformed and changed throughout all of our being. For your salvation to us is great. And your love to us is without end. And you are at the center of all that we desire. And we want to make that known in every part of our life, wherever we go. And so, grant us these things, Father, in the name of Jesus. And we pray it in His name. Amen. Have you ever noticed uh, that we spend more time thinking about what we wear on our wedding day than what we're going to wear for that marriage? which is kind of ironic when you think about uh, how we get so dressed up, especially us guys at a wedding, we guys at that wedding. You know, I heard somebody say one time that grooms are like a restroom at a museum. 
they're necessary, but nobody goes there to look at them. We spend a lot of time thinking about what a baby wears the first time it comes home from the hospital, but sometimes very little time thinking about what they're going to wear for the rest of their life. We spend time stressing over what to wear the first day on a new job, but we think sometimes very little about what we're going to wear on that job every day after that. We stress a lot over what we're going to wear on that first date. But we do not think a lot about what we're going to wear as that relationship develops. You know, uh, that picture is really not that far off. Uh, I remember one time back in the 1980s, this was actually 1980, I I was at ACU as a freshman, Uh, Ellen was a a freshman, we had just started dating, and I'm thinking about what I want to wear on this date. It wasn't quite the first date, but uh, we had kind of been dating, and probably this is the only thing that saved me, was that we had been dating for a little while, and I decided, hey, we're going to go out to a nice restaurant, why don't I get dressed up? So, and remember, this is 1980, and I'm 18 years old. straw cowboy hat I have a double knit polyester western double yoked suit that is sort of this light brown so light it's nearly pink and it's pinstriped I mean the yoke in the back the yoke in the front the big lapels I have one of the coolest pair but it's the most pointed pair of ring lizard cowboy boots you've ever seen in your life and to make that thing complete I had this gigantic Fu Manchu mustache. Ta-da! Don't you want to be seen in public with me, Ellen? Come on. (laughs) You know, we were talking about that, and I said, uh, you know, every time I think about that on some, I have to laugh, but I think, man, amazing. And Ellen, she has had one word. It's not even really a word. She just went, ugh. And that's about her commentary on that suit. But, you know, the funny thing is is that we don't often think about what it is as disciples that we're supposed to wear. Disciples of Jesus do have a daily garment ensemble. We do. And Paul calls it in Ephesians chapter 6, say it with me, the armor of what? Of God. You can read about the armor of God in verses 13 and 14 of Ephesians chapter 6 to get the details, but one of the first things you notice in reading Ephesians 6 is that it's not the leisure suit for God or the tuxedo for God or even the corporate casual for God. It's the armor of God that we're to put on. And there is a reason for that. Paul is calling these disciples in in Ephesus to an individual and personal spiritual battle all of us who are disciples of jesus of nazareth are called into an individual personal spiritual battle listen very carefully beginning in verse 10 of ephesians 6 paul is bringing this to a conclusion he says finally be strong in the lord and in his mighty power put on the full armor of god so that you can take your what stand against the devil's schemes For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. Now, When you read that, it's really about three things. It's about being, number one in verse 10, it's about being strong spiritually. 
In verse 11, it's about standing against the schemes of the devil. And in verse 12, it's a reminder that the real battle is not against other human beings. It's not against flesh and blood, but it's ultimately a spiritual battle. We do not put on the armor of God in order to go and fight other people. It's spiritual in nature. Now, one of the things when you think about battles... And there are a lot of things that every battle has in common, but there's one thing in particular that every battle has in common, and that is a battlefield. And beginning in chapter 6 and kind of working all the way back to the beginning of chapter 5, so we're going backwards, we're kind of uh, crawfishing here, we're kind of starting with the armor of God and working backwards, there are several battlefields that are mentioned. In verses 5 through 9 of chapter 6, it's the workplace. That as a disciple of Jesus, one of the places where there is a spiritual battle, that we are representing God as our Father and as our Creator and Jesus as our Savior, is in the workplace. How we interact with customers, how we interact with the boss, and if we're the boss with employees, and if we're a worker there with, with the fellow workers and employees, that that workplace is a place where spiritual battle is taking place. In verses 1 through 4, the beginning of chapter 6, it's about the family, and primarily it's about relationship with children. Now that is a place where spiritual battle takes place. And then beginning in chapter 5, verses 22 to 33, he begins to talk about marriage. And as you know, uh, marriage is one of those places where uh, all things spiritual kind of come to a head, and there's a spiritual battle that takes place there. And he, he's really talking about the church, but he uses the, the marriage as a metaphor to talk about it. And then finally, in verses 3 through 17, he talks about human sexuality. That's where we want to park a little bit this morning. One of my favorite commentators, uh, uh, one of the leading, I think, one of the leading New Testament scholars in the world, a fellow by the name of N.T. Wright, in one of his commentaries, writes about walking through a college gateway in England where he's a professor. And through this gateway, there's these walls, and on these walls, there are posters plastered all over the place, like you would find even in American colleges. But these posters are advertising college events and college clubs and, and, and things that are going on on that campus. One caught his eye one day. He's going through that, that gateway, and he sees just this plain poster with one word right, written right in the middle of it. S-E-X. Caught his eye. Went over to look at it, and down at the very bottom, it said in small print, now that we have your attention, how about joining the college rowing club? He writes, the two had nothing to do with each other, but the one designing the poster simply exploited the fact that people in Western culture are obsessed with it and that it immediately grabs our attention. End of quote. You know, the funny thing about the ancient world is that the ancient world of Paul was very similar to ours in this regard. Casual sexual practices flourished in all the cities of the Roman Empire. Um, you look at some of the wall paintings of houses that uh, were, have been uncovered in Pompeii. Uh, you look at some of the, the things that are depicted on mundane things in the ancient world like drinking cups. And you get a pretty good idea of the kinds of things that were going on in the ancient world in this area. Even the ancient pagan religions, as you know, we've talked about these in our Bible classes and, and in our sermons, uh, the, the ancient pagan religions used sex as a part of their cultic practices. At that time, as well as ours, when it came to human sexuality, there was very, very little restraint. 
this last month in the September issue, you know how they do it, in August, the September issue of a magazine comes out. This last month, Vanity Fair published an article about a website called Tinder that connects people for the sole purpose of a sexual encounter. In this, this article, it's sort of a long one, the, the writer uh, just writes about an investment banker by the name of Marty who claims that he is just racking up the girls. 30 or 40 over the past year. Another investment banker referencing the food delivery service called Seamless stated, instead of food, basically what you're doing is you're ordering up a person. A young female student, she's a senior at Boston College, uh, said something, I think, poignant. And I quote, the, uh, there's, um, there's no dating, there's no relationship, you can have a fling that could last like seven, eight months, and you could never actually call someone your boyfriend. No one gets hurt, well, at least not on the surface. And then one of her friends, who's been observing all of this, adds, but sex should stem from emotional intimacy. And it's the opposite with us right now, and I think it's really kind of destroying female self-images. End of quote. You know, there, there's... There's irony in this. Not happy, funny irony, sad irony. This is the irony of human sexuality when God is factored out of it. The very thing that God has created to help foster intimacy and unity and the sense of love and, and to flourish emotionally and oneness, experience oneness between a man and a woman in a relationship that's defined by vows and commitment for life actually creates loneliness when God is removed. And so into Ephesus, where no one has ever heard of Christ, and probably very little about God the Creator unless they ran into a Hebrew or had some contact with the synagogue, here comes Paul into this city preaching the message of the gospel. And as these people come to understand the gospel, they turn from a life that is dark and oppressive and hopeless and fearful, and it's marked at times with profound betrayal and full of anxiety. There's desperation. They hear the gospel, and they turn from that life to the Christ. And in turning to that life that involves Christ as Lord, they begin to understand in the gospel, the gospel redefines love, and it redefines human worth. But you and I both know that discipleship doesn't come without a struggle, does it? Discipleship in any era, in any culture, is not easy. It doesn't come without a struggle, and it doesn't come overnight. And that's why Paul gets to this very practical end of this letter to the, the church in Ephesus. He writes to the church in Ephesus with these newly minted Christians, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. He says, I want you to live out the ramifications and the implications of the gospel in your life. You drop down to verse 17 of chapter 4. He says, I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord. You must no longer live as the Gentiles do. The funny thing is, they are Gentiles. He says, you must no, no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. What Paul is doing is reminding them and at the same time 2,000 years later reminding us that the gospel is not just about the forgiveness of sins. 
The gospel is the forgiveness of sins, but more. It's also about the transformation of a person, which, as you know, is difficult at times. That sometimes you can take the person out of the world more easily than you can take the world out of the person. And this is where Paul gets very practical things in helping new Christians learn how to live lives that look like light. He's He's just not calling them to an ethic. He's calling them to a life that is beautiful. He's calling them to live a life that looks like light in a world of darkness. So how does Paul help us to do this? A couple of things. Number one, he reminds them that the struggle is internal. The struggle is internal. You can fight this area of your life as much as you want on the facade and on the outside, but until you begin to do business at the core of your being, that's a battle that is going to be waged over and over and over and over again, and sometimes in very futile ways. Listen to what he says in Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 22. He says, You were taught with regard to your former way of life, to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its, two words, say it with me, deceitful desires. Say it again, deceitful desires. Circle that in your Bible if, if, uh, if you can, or write it out on the side of that outline. Which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Now, the struggle is internal. The struggle is with these deceitful desires. Again, make note of that somewhere on that outline. What in the world does deceitful desires mean? Well, we've talked about this before. Our hearts, our minds have been built. They uh, They have been created in such a way that they were meant to be captured by something by, by a, a, a desire. We're, we're built to desire something. And that desire is what gives meaning to our life. It's, it's, it's that desire that gives our life significance. It's, it's what makes our life, and at least in our own mind, on a day-to-day basis, it's what makes our life kind of compelling to live. It's whatever you think makes your life meaningful and compelling. The problem, though, is that we can be deceived. We can be deceived to give our hearts to something that destroys us and enslaves us rather than blesses us. The problem is that our hearts and minds can become filled with all the wrong kinds of things. Our hearts and minds can be filled with things that deceive us. And you know what deception is, right? Deception is about disorientation. It's about confusion. And when our hearts are filled with things that are deceitful, it creates disorientation. It can create confusion about life that we're really never fully aware of until it's too late much of the time. And so God, through the gospel, is not just forgiving us of our sins, but He's also restructuring the human heart and the human mind in such a way that we desire the very thing that brings life. And that is to desire God, to love God with what? All our heart and our soul and our mind and our strength. To put God at the very center. So we need to be reminded, and Paul does a good job of this, uh, that the struggle 
or this sexual sanity in life is it's it's an internal kind of a struggle but then the second thing is that this challenge that we're facing is really about change it's to not live that old way it's to become like god he'll say at the beginning of ephesians chapter 5 and verse 1 the new niv doesn't do as great a job as as the old niv did the the, the greek word is there is mimetai it means to mimic it means imitate god that is the new self that we're putting on. That's the new life we're, that, we're, that we're living. We're learning to live as God lives. In chapter 5, verse 15, he says, Be careful how you live. Be very careful, then, how you live. Not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. How do you do that? This is where Paul gets into the text that Bob read for us in a very practical way. How do you put on the armor of God in the area of human sexuality? Well, the first thing is to commit to spiritual sexual sanity. Commit to spiritual sexual sanity. That is not Victorianism. That is not Victorianism. It always blows my mind when I realize or am reminded that the very first sexual thought that ever existed in the history of everything was a thought that was thought by God. And God had the very first sexual thought in all the universe. That blows my mind every time I think about it. And this is the commitment, this this commitment to spiritual sexual sanity, it is a commitment to embrace human sexuality in a way that reflects the presence of God. That God has become the center of your life, not all of these other things that are deceitful in the way that you desire them, in the way that you, they, they lead to disorientation and confusion in your life, but this commitment is to recognize God and to reflect that in every area, even this one. And so he says in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 3, among you... There must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed. You know, football season started last Thursday night. We're kind of into, uh, you know, the first week of college football. And one of the things that's always sad uh, that first week is all of the work, all of the, all of the trouble that these young guys have gone into, the practice, the sweat, the dedication, the doing without uh, a lot of things that they would rather be doing socially in order to be at practice, all of that for many of them comes to an end that first week. And the reason is, is that they receive an impact, they receive a blow, a shock to their body in such a way that it dislocates a shoulder or it dislocates uh, a knee or an ankle. And what happens is because of that impact, that blow that goes to that shoulder that dislocates it, that injury is profound, and at least in the time being, they can't operate in a normal way. And because of the, the severity or to the degree of which that shoulder is, is dislocated, there is usually a lot of time to come out of that in, in, uh, injury in such a way that, that, that you can function normally. Now, this, this is what happens in, in a, 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 a sexual life that is not God-centered. That experience brings a, a, an impact, a, a shock to your being that it dislocates you and disorients you in a certain kind of way. That's why Paul says, if that's how it hits us, 
then why would you even allow a hint of it in your life? There must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. That greed is turning that sexual experience into an idol. Disciples of Jesus understand that human sexuality is connected to holiness. And then, number two, exhibit a spiritual sexual ethic. He says in verse 4, Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. He says then in verse 12, It's shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. Two quick points here. Jesus once said, that out of the overflow of the mouth, the heart speaks. In a much more populist kind of way of saying it, uh, Shane West says, out of, from, you know, deep in the well, uh, uh, it comes up in the bucket. What's down in the well comes up in the bucket. How you talk about human sexuality reflects what's going on in your heart and mind. And, and one of the things that I think is a challenge for all of us in this culture that is saturated with it is, is to think very clearly, to listen very care- carefully to the way that we speak about human sexuality and what it might be revealing is lurking deep, deep, deep down in the core of our heart. And then uh, a second thing, and, and I want to quote another member here. This is Barry Newton. Barry often says in staff meetings and in conversations that there are doors that once are opened are hard to shut. Those are doors that should have never been opened in the first place. I agree wholeheartedly with that. And that's why coarse joking and vulgar speech about human sexuality do not lead to an enlightened sexual ethic. They are a door that leads you down the wrong kind of path. And that extends further than to mere speech. Look at verses 6 and and 7. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. Now, what is a partner? What is a partner? Well, when you you have a partner, basically it's more than a friendship. It's a special relationship with another human being whom you think has your back, somebody that protects you, helps you to flourish and to succeed. And if that partnership is bad because it's leading you someplace, uh, to a bad place, leading you to crash into a wall, if that partnership is bad in business, what do you do? You get out of it, right? You dissolve the partnership. That, in essence, is what Paul is talking about here. He says, you know, when you come into the church, the way you think about the church is that it's made up of all of these different kinds of people. That's the second chapter. Of, of, of Ephesians. The church is made up of all kinds of different people. But the one thing that they have in common is that they have come together because they recognize that they are lost without the cross of Jesus. And when those people recognize what it is that God has done in saving them and bringing them together, all those walls of enmity that had been up before them have been knocked down because we're all trophies at the foot of trophies of grace at the foot of the cross. And he says at the end of that, when those people come together realizing that they are people of the gospel, guess they're partnering with each other, and guess who else becomes a part of that? It's God himself dwelling in their midst. 
what Paul is saying is that when you think about the people in your life that are influencing you, that you're taking your cues from, are they people that are helping you to understand the, the gospel aspect of human sexuality, or are they people that are, are, are helping you to think about sexuality in such deceitful ways that it's going to dislocate you and disorient you and confuse you? And then finally, expect a spiritual sexual transformation. He says in verse 8 of Ephesians 5, You were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. Last week, we were reminded that we are to live our lives like Jesus, full of grace and truth. What happens when people who are full of grace and truth, truth and grace, live a holy human sexuality? They see a beauty they want. They see something they're attracted to but haven't found it because they were deceived and looking for it in all of the wrong places. I always think about that passage in Luke chapter 7. This is where we'll close this morning. I think about that, that story in Luke chapter 7 where Jesus is at dinner with the Pharisee and there is a woman of the city, an amartolo in the language, probably a prostitute. Jesus is reclining at this table having dinner with this Pharisee, and this woman comes in, and she, she sees Jesus eating at this table, and she comes and she stands behind this holy, loving, gracious, celibate Lord, and she starts to weep. When she's in His presence, Her dark life is exposed. The deceitful desires are brought to light. She is standing in the presence of, 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 a, of a man who is sinless and without blemish, who does not objectify her as a woman, sees her as a human being. And he is so righteous, without a fault. And yet, she stands behind him and weep in his presence with all of that being exposed and doesn't run away. Who she is has been brought to light and an anvil hasn't fallen on her. And she begins to become so overwhelmed by the light that is in him that all she can do in, in her own personal darkness is to weep and to find something, something precious, something great, something to give him, something to show how beautiful she finds him. And she, she begins to anoint him and she washes his feet with her tears and dries it with her hair. I, I, I'm, sometimes I'm, I'm just so overcome by the power of Jesus and the way He lived His life even when He didn't say a word. There was something so powerful about His connection to God and His connection to people.
that was, was not warped by, by deceitful human sexuality and where it has become fallen and where it, is, it has come off the track. But in living His life at the very center of God's will, living His life at the very center of God's will, the stream of God's will for His life, He became so beautiful that even somebody that was in such a wretched state as this woman could come to Him. And here, go in peace. That's who we are in this community. We are people who have struggled individually and personally with this part of our life to the extent that it is under the lordship of, of Jesus. It is where we are becoming like God. We're imitating God. We're learning, Ephesians 5, verse 2, to walk in love as Jesus walked in love, and especially in this area, that when people are struggling and they find that they've hit that wall in this area of their life because of the abuses or the excesses or because they thought that something sensuous was at the very center of human experience, only to find that it's hollow and it's simple and it's shallow and it's superficial and it's a facade of something that's more meaningful but what in the world is that until they come into the presence of people like you and me who have discovered the gospel and Jesus has restructured our, restructured our hearts in such a way that we become light people of light children of light in the midst of darkness Ben's going to lead us in a song right now and, and maybe you're wanting to make that change this morning. You know that there's darkness. If there was one word that sort of described you, it's darkness. And you want to leave that darkness and you want to come to light. We're going to have some of our shepherds down here at the front to talk to you about that very thing. Or if there's some other things that we can be praying about, come down to the front and share these with these elders, our shepherds, as we stand and we praise God together.